Welcome to A Word Fitly Spoken, a podcast about Jesus, His Word, and our joy in following Him. I'm Amy Spreeman. And I'm Michelle Leslie. On last week's episode, Roman Catholicism, Mass Confusion, we talked about eight primary doctrines on Catholicism and why they're unbiblical. And if you haven't listened to that episode yet, you might want to listen to it before today's episode, especially if you aren't very familiar with the beliefs of Catholicism, because it'll give you a good foundation for some of the things that we'll be talking about today. Yes, and in this episode, as promised, we have a very special guest to help us understand more about Catholicism and how to share the gospel with our friends and loved ones who are Catholic. And that special guest is Mike Gendron of the Apologetics and Evangelism Ministry, Proclaiming the Gospel. Hey, Mike, welcome. Hey, well, it's good to be with you, too. Thanks for having me. Well, and I got the pleasure of meeting you and your wife, Kathy, a few years ago when you were up here in Green Bay uh, giving a presentation. You do a lot of speaking and teaching. Why don't you start by telling us just a little bit about yourself and how you started this incredible ministry? Well, I give all the credit to our Lord. He's the one that started it. We actually just had a great burden for Roman Catholics. My wife and I both came out of Catholicism. And during my last semester at seminary, we were introduced to a gospel video by former priests and nuns, and it was very effective. We brought it home, and we decided we needed to start sharing this video with every Roman Catholic we knew. And so wow. over the next three months, we saw 17 Roman Catholics exchange their religion for a relationship with the Lord Jesus Christ. Well, not everybody received it with gladness and joy. There were many Catholics that came and were very upset. They stormed out of our house and slammed the door. But that's what happens when you share the gospel. Some will embrace it and believe it, and others will find it offensive. And so that was really the genesis of this ministry. What do you do with 17 new babes in Christ? You invite them back over on Wednesday night to help them grow in the grace and knowledge of our Lord. And so it was during those Wednesday night sessions that people began asking us to write things down and we started publishing gospel tracts, and the uh, seven gospel tracts that we have now have been so effective in really showing Roman Catholics the difference between what the Bible teaches and what the Catholic Church teaches. And ultimately, they're forced to make a decision. And so we saw a lot of fruit come out of the early days of sharing the gospel. And before you know it, Pastors were inviting me in to equip their congregation to reach out to Roman Catholics. And then seminaries invited me in to train and equip the faculty and the students. And the Lord has taken us all around the world several times. We really stand in awe of what he's accomplished over the last 31 years. And most of our travels have been in countries dominated by Roman Catholicism. And that would include places like the Philippines and Central America, South America, all over Europe, Croatia, Canada, down to New Zealand, Australia twice, even over to Burma, which is now called Myanmar. Many Roman Catholics are there as well. And so we just stand in awe of what the Lord has done with a couple of broken vessels that really have a great love for Roman Catholics who are where we were for most of our lives. And we just want to make sure that they have an opportunity to hear the gospel because as Catholics, we never heard it in the Catholic church. In fact, I can tell you that I never heard about the substitutionary atonement of Christ as a Roman Catholic. Now I knew that Jesus died for the sins of the world. The Catholic church taught that very well, but I never knew that Jesus died for me. And that's salvation. History is when Jesus dies for the world. Salvation is when he dies for you. And so when the Lord saved me, it literally turned my life upside down. I recognized very quickly that the only two things in this life that last for eternity are the souls of men and the word of God. And I wanted to spend the rest of my life doing the things that would last throughout all eternity. And that's sharing the word of God with precious souls that are trapped in religious deception. 
Wow, that is amazing. I'm, I'm so excited to hear your story and your testimony. And, and that really should be true for all of us, that out of the overflow of gratitude in our hearts for Christ saving us, that we go to maybe even people who are just like us and have our same background uh, and share the gospel with them because we know what it's like to be trapped you know, in that kind of sin or that situation or whatever. And so you're going specifically to Catholics to share the gospel. Is there any specific approach that you like to use when sharing the gospel with someone who's Catholic that might be a little different from the approach that you would use with someone who's not Catholic? Yes, Michelle, I'm so glad you asked that because there is a difference between witnessing to Catholics and witnessing to others that are lost. Roman Catholics believe they belong to the one true church. And one of the things that we have to consider is they submit to a different authority. You and I, the three of us, our supreme authority is the Word of God. And so we test every teaching against the supreme authority of God's Word. But when we witness to Roman Catholics, we have to recognize that they have three authorities. One is the Word of God. Another is their sacred tradition. And they also have infallible popes and bishops. And so we need to establish the supreme authority of God's Word as we witness to Catholics, because if we don't do that up front, they're always going to be saying, well, I know the Bible says that, but our tradition teaches something different, and we trust our tradition. So what are the ways we can establish the Word of God? I think Acts 17.11 is a perfect verse for that, because here you have the Apostle Paul teaching. He's teaching in the synagogues of Berea, and he notices that while he's teaching, People are searching the scriptures to test the veracity of an apostle's teaching. And so that should show that if an apostle comes under the scrutiny of scripture, then we should make sure that we test every man's teaching. And so as we share with Catholics, your priest should be tested according to scripture, your bishops and your pope as well. If they don't line up with scripture, then we need to reject their teaching. If they conform to Scripture, then we can believe it. And then we come to the traditions. How do we establish Scripture to be superior to Roman Catholic tradition? Well, again, we have a great example in Mark chapter 7. That's when the Lord Jesus is opposing the apostate Jews. He said, you nullify the Word of God for the sake of your tradition. And so here you see that the Word of God must have a higher authority than tradition, because if it doesn't, then tradition will end up nullifying the Word of God. And so those are the two passages that we need to take Catholics to. Now, the second most important thing is that we need to establish the sufficiency of our Lord Jesus Christ. Roman Catholics have another Jesus. He did not finish the work of redemption. In fact, the work of redemption continues on Catholic altars every day as the priest is said to have the power to call the Lord Jesus Christ back down from heaven to be transubstantiated into a wafer so that he can be worshipped in the Roman Catholic Mass, and then the priest will lay the Eucharist on the altar as a propitiatory sacrifice, believing that God is appeased by the offering of the Eucharist for the sins the Catholics committed in the previous week. When the Lord Jesus cried out, it is finished, it was a victory cry in John 19.30. He finished the work of redemption. And all the sins that believers have committed were paid for at Calvary's cross. In Roman Catholicism, the sins are only paid for during the sacrifice of the Mass for the sins committed in the previous week. And so we need to show that Christ is sufficient that he finished the work of redemption. It was perfect, and nothing else is required. In fact, the book of Hebrews is such a good place to go. Hebrews chapter 9 and 10, we see that Jesus offered himself once for all sin, for all time. There are no more offerings for sin. And then we read in Hebrews 10, 14, by one offering he has made perfect forever those who are being sanctified. So establishing the sufficiency of Christ is so important as we witness to Roman Catholics. 
Yeah, I, I can't imagine um, going anywhere else but his sufficiency. And uh, I and I remember those days well when I was Catholic. My husband and I got married in the Catholic Church, and it was such a burden. Uh, the whole uh, mass uh, didn't feel right uh, at the time, but I didn't know why. And, uh, and, and I think it was the legalism. Um, it, at the time you think it's comforting because you're following the rules, but you can't keep the rules. And, and, uh, so I, I'm very thankful the Lord opened our eyes and, and brought us out. But, you know, Mike, uh, we talked a little bit on our, uh, Michelle and I did on our last episode about the anathemas of the Council of Trent. And the bottom line is, if you believe in salvation by grace alone and faith alone in Christ alone, as we three do, basically, if you're a Protestant, um, Catholicism teaches that you're lost. We we are all lost and going to hell. Now, wouldn't a Catholic person see a, a Protestant person who's trying to share the gospel with her as a lost person who's trying to convert the Catholic person into lostness? And so why would a Catholic person even listen to a Protestant share the gospel with her? Uh, what we need to recognize is that this is not an issue between Protestants and Catholics. The issue here is, what does the Bible say, and how does the Roman Catholic Church teach in contrast to the Bible? So we need to make sure that we're not we're not uh, competing, if you will, between Protestants and Catholics. There are many Protestant churches and Protestant denominations that have gone apostate as well, and so we have to yes. recognize that. And so it goes back to what is our authority for knowing truth? And so when we do that, we can show from the Bible that the glorious gospel of our Lord Jesus Christ is diametrically opposed to the plan of salvation in the Catholic Church. And as we show what the Bible teaches regarding salvation, we're forcing Catholics to make a choice. Should I trust my Bible or my catechism, because it's impossible to believe both. And by the way, I really encourage you, if you're witnessing to a Catholic and they have their own Bible, use their Bible, because they have the same 66 books that we do. They're told not to trust anything that's not in the Catholic Church. And so you're eliminating a barrier by using their Bible. And so as you show them the scriptures, you can show them that Christ is sufficient, that he finished the work of redemption, that the gospel promises the assurance of eternal life. One of the great places to take Catholics is 1 John 5.13, because Amy, as you know, growing up Catholic, you never had the assurance of eternal life. We had conditional life. Whether or not we got to heaven was conditioned on what we do rather than what Christ has done. So we can show them 1 John 5.13, that John writes to those who believe in the name of the Son of God, that you can know that you have eternal life. That's such good news to someone who's trying to get to heaven based on what they do. And so you can share with them the assurance comes not by trusting in what we do, but trusting in what Christ has done, because he's done everything necessary. When he went to the cross, he was immersed in God's wrath as full payment for the sins of all those who trust in him. And then what does he do? He gives us his righteousness, his perfect righteousness, which becomes our passport into heaven. The two things that keep anyone out of heaven, they have an eternal sin debt they could never pay. Only an eternal God could do that. And he has the perfect righteousness that God requires for entrance into heaven. That's how we can have assurance, trusting in all that Christ has done. That is such good news. And I just, it just, oh gosh, it just touches my heart every time I hear it. doesn't matter how many times I hear the gospel. It just, uh, it just moves me. And, and we want to, we want to share that with our Catholic friends and loved ones. And, and, you know, I think we also want to try and convince our Protestant friends and loved ones that we all need to be about the business of sharing the gospel with those who are uh, still enslaved to the false doctrine of Catholicism. But I know a lot of times when I tell a professing Christian that Catholicism isn't Christianity, she'll say, well, I know plenty of Catholics who are good Christians. So how would you respond to something like that? Yeah, that's a question that we often hear, and it really comes down to how do you define a good Christian? 
A good Christian is not one who practices idolatry. A good Christian is not one who prays to someone other than God. We need to challenge Roman Catholics to find one place in the Bible where any God-fearing man prays to anyone other than God. In fact, in Deuteronomy 18, verses 11 and 12, God says this is detestable if you pray to anyone other than him, if you call on the dead. And so the other thing that we have to show is that you can't be a good Christian if you practice idolatry. And the Roman Catholic Church practices idolatry because the Jesus of the Catholic Church is a counterfeit Christ. He's the, the true Christ. He lived a sinless life. He died on Calvary's cross. Three days later, he was raised from the dead. He ascended into heaven to receive the name above all names. Now he sits as an advocate for all those who put their trust in him. And Hebrews 9.28 says he will remain in heaven until his enemies have been made his footstool. He will not return again until then. And then Hebrews 9.28 says he will return a second time. In other words, he doesn't return every day. Like the Catholic priest says, he has the power to call him back down from heaven. And then it also says in Hebrews 9.28, when he returns the second time, it will not be for sin. He's already accomplished everything necessary for the forgiveness of sins. And so we can see throughout Scripture that Christ will remain in heaven. In Matthew 24, we see that Christ will return in glory the same way that he left. He left in a body. And he will also return to the same place he left, the Mount of Olives. And so by the authority of Scripture, we can tell Catholics the Eucharist is a false Christ. It's a counterfeit Christ. And when you worship the Eucharist, you're committing the serious sin of idolatry. So it's impossible for a Christian to be a good Christian if he practices idolatry and is detestable before God by praying to someone other than God. Another question that we often hear is, well, I know a Catholic who's saved, and I'll say, well, how do you know? And I say, well, they love Jesus. And so my response is, which Jesus do they love? It's not the Jesus of the Bible. And so we have to encourage people to challenge Roman Catholics in their faith and make sure they're believing the true gospel that's revealed in Scripture. That's right. And I think I'm hearing you say something that we said when we recorded our episode last week, um, is that a lot of this just all comes down to the authority and the sufficiency of Scripture, um, that that's what we need to believe, that's what they need to believe, that's what we need to really home in on uh, when we're sharing the gospel with Catholics. Um, and I just, and so that, that sola scriptura concept is so important. And I, I just wonder, you know, I know around the time of the Reformation, during the Reformation, that that was one of the key concepts that they focused on, the Protestants focused on during the Reformation. And so you think back to things like that, and you think back to how corrupt the Catholic Church was even then. And you have to wonder, uh, did Catholicism's did Catholicism, do you think Catholicism started off biblically and maybe focused on Scripture and then just gradually departed from Scripture? Or do you think it was unbiblical from the very beginning? Yes, good question, Michelle. And I want to just accentuate Sola Scriptura. And I think a great verse for any Catholic that might be listening is 2 Timothy chapter 3, verses 15 and 16. There we see that the scripture is the inspired word of God, and it's useful for correcting, for rebuking, for teaching. And so we can use scripture to correct anything that's false. It establishes itself as the supreme authority in that verse. But when you look at Roman Catholic history, and I actually have done a complete message entitled Roman Catholicism's Drift into Apostasy. It's available on a DVD on our website. but what we do is we show that, yes, Christ only founded one church, and Roman Catholics can trace their history back to Matthew 16, 18, where Jesus said, I will build my church. And what happened is during the fourth century, Roman Catholicism started departing from the authority of Scripture, and they started introducing pagan traditions. And so 
some professing Christians left the Catholic or left the uh, the true church. By the way, apostasy started in the first century. We can see that in First John <laughs> chapter two, verse nineteen, where John says they went out from us because they were never part of us. Had they been part of us, they would have remained with us. In another way, John could have said that they went out from us because they weren't born again. Had they been born again, they would have remained with us. And so what you see in the third and fourth century, these false converts that were never born again started departing from the faith of the apostles to follow pagan traditions. Constantine invited all the pagans into the church. All you had to do is go through the baptismal font. There was no repentance required, no faith in Christ. And so you see the genesis of the Roman Catholic Church really starting in the fourth century. And then you can see over the next 1,200 years, they departed more and more from the faith of the apostles. And then at the Council of Trent, they formally and dogmatically departed from the apostolic faith, not only by the 100 anathemas that condemn you and I because we believe in the sufficiency of Christ and the authority of God's word, but they also dogmatically declared a gospel of salvation by sacraments and also by good works. In fact, I'm sure both of you know that one of the anathemas that condemn you and I at the Council of Trent, if we believe that we're justified by faith apart from works, then we are condemned by the Catholic Church because Rome says justification is by faith plus works. That's an entirely different gospel. The Reformers said justification is the very hinge upon which the gates of heaven open and close. If you get justification wrong, you get the gospel wrong. And so that was the official departure of the Catholic Church into apostasy in the 16th century. You know, Mike, this is so good. And uh, I, I have to think that in our homes, in our personal lives, um, our listeners, you, you have to know that there are people who have Catholic uh, loved ones, Catholic friends. I know uh, both my husband and I, uh, you know, we departed the Catholic Church in uh, the mid-1990s, and we still have dear loved ones who are you know, going to Mass every Sunday. They're, they're Catholic. And whenever we have these conversations with our loved ones, and uh, we point out, various unbiblical Catholic, Catholic doctrines, uh, he or she will invariably say, well, that's really not what we believe. Um, the church doesn't really teach that. We don't really pray to Mary. Does that ever happen to you? And if so, how do you uh, respond to them? Well, sure, it happens all the time. And one of the most frequent um, rebuttals we have is we don't believe in purgatory anymore. And so I will ask them next time you go to the Mass, Look at the weekly bulletin and look and you'll see the names of the people that the mass is being offered for to get them out of purgatory. Oh, you pay good money for that. Yes, absolutely. My relatives pay to have that said. Oh, my dear old dad, when he passed, uh, we went through his mail. We couldn't believe just hundreds of mass cards that had been purchased to get him out of a place that doesn't even exist. And it's so heartbreaking because... You see, Roman Catholicism really controls people not only in this life, but also in the next. We know people that have willed their entire estates to the Catholic Church so that perpetual masses will be said to get them out of a place called purgatory. But there's another thing that, you know, when Catholics say, well, we don't teach that anymore. I always carry around my gospel tracts, and this one here entitled Roman Catholicism, Scripture Versus Tradition. This is an excellent track to, to have when this question comes up, because in this track, I show what the Catholic Bible teaches right alongside what the Catholic Catechism teaches. And so if they say we don't teach this anymore, I simply open this up and show them the paragraph number from their official catechism that shows they, they still teach that. In fact, we need to make sure that your listeners know that Roman Catholics have what are called dogmas. And they can never change. They're in cement. They're pronounced by infallible bishops. So if they were to change one dogma, the whole Roman Catholic Church would collapse. And so all of these dogmas that have been pronounced, they still are in effect today. And we need to point people to the scriptures. It's forever settled in heaven. 
It's the supreme authority. It's God's inspired word. Absolutely. Gosh, I just thinking about all the all of these false doctrines in the Catholic Church, um, and I hate to even call it a church because it's like you've said, if if you're standing against the gospel, it's you're not a church. <laughs> but um, you know, I, I think about all of those things and I think about people who have come out of Catholicism and probably look back on all of those things with just a sense of darkness and, and regret and and everything. But then you do see people who convert to Catholicism. So there must be something attractive about it. Is is there anything that, Mike, that you um, particularly miss about Catholicism, maybe the structure or anything else like that? I guess if there was one thing, it was a a reverence for God. That is something that the Catholic Church instilled in me, a very deep reverence for God. But unfortunately, it was um, a reverence mostly out of fear. I looked at God as one who was ready to zap me every time I sinned. And as a Roman Catholic, I was powerless to do anything about my sin because I didn't have the indwelling Holy Spirit. But... Um, When I look back on Catholicism and I recognize that for 35 years I was in spiritual darkness and I was very devout as a Roman Catholic. I did everything that the Catholic Church taught in order to merit my salvation. When I went to school in uh, Lafayette, University of Southwestern Louisiana at the time, I went to church every day during Lent because, as you know, if you grew up Catholic, we looked at God as grading on the scale. You know, we we hoped that our good works would outweigh our bad works. And so by going to church every day during Lent, I was building up indulgences, knowing that one day I'd have to spend time in purgatory. And anyway, uh, I never stopped thanking the Lord every day that he delivered me out of the spiritual darkness into the glorious light of his kingdom. And, you know, We have to recognize that every unbeliever is held captive by the devil to do his will. We see that in 2 Timothy chapter 2, verses 24 to 26, that we are to pray for unbelievers, that God would grant them repentance, leading to a knowledge of the truth, so they can escape the snare of the devil that holds them captive to do his will. And the only way they can be set free is to listen to the words of Jesus in John chapter 8 verses 31 to 32. He said, a true disciple of mine is one who abides in my word. Then they will know the truth, and that truth will set them free, free from religious deception, free from the bondage of the devil. And so that is our, that's our goal is to encourage Catholics to read the Bible, to test the teaching that every man gives them. Does it line up with scripture or not? Very good. And, you know, I, I do have one kind of sensitive topic to ask you about. Um, and I know the Catholic Church doesn't have, uh, you know, a hold on, you know, it's not just the Catholic Church, but it, it is seeming to be a problem. How do you address the issue of sexual abuse cases in Catholicism that we hear about so much in the news? Well, I've had the opportunity to witness to those who have been abused by Roman Catholic priests. And I encourage them. I say, if you will just trust in the only high priest that will never forsake you, never abuse you, then you will be healed from this abuse. Mm -hmm. I really had a wonderful opportunity in Dallas several years ago when all the bishops got together at the Fairmont Hotel to have a convention to discuss the sexual abuse that's going on among priests and bishops. And I'll never forget, it was a hot August afternoon, and I was engaging the bishops as they came out of the hotel and had an opportunity to share the gospel with them. But there was one dear mother who came up to me and said, my son was abused by a Roman Catholic priest when he was 13 years old, and he never could get over the abuse, and he finally committed suicide. And so that's when I was able to witness to her and to talk about Jesus being the high priest that she could trust. And she said, I really thank you for spending your time to share this with me, but I was born a Catholic and I'm going to die a Catholic. 
And it just broke my heart. Mm -hmm. Here is a religion that was responsible for her son committing suicide. And she had such a grip on the religion that she wouldn't leave it to come to the Lord Jesus Christ. And and I did correct her. I said, you may think you were born a Catholic and you're die a Catholic, but the Bible says you were born a sinner and you're going to die a sinner unless you repent and believe the gospel. I gave her a hug and we parted ways, but it was just heartbreaking. That that really is heartbreaking. And I just, I can't even imagine, you know, continuing to cling to a system that that is, like you said, responsible for the death of her son. And um, gosh, and even in the face of hearing the gospel again, you know, we keep coming back to that. Um, she she still didn't want to be set free from that. Um, but, you know, being speaking of the gospel and people knowing the gospel, you know, being a Southern Baptist, I've unfortunately heard of and also personally known people who were raised knowing the gospel and raised in doctrinally sound Baptist churches and other doctrinally sound Protestant churches, and yet they converted to Catholicism as adults. Why do you think that is? What is it about Catholicism that some Protestants find attractive? Well, first, let me just say that they were false converts if they departed from the faith to an apostate religion. They were never born again. If they were born again, they would never depart from the apostolic faith. So what is the attraction? Well, I can tell you that in my 31 years of ministry, not once has a Protestant ever left the Protestant church to join the Catholic church because of the Bible, because of biblical doctrine. The reason they leave are threefold. They believe that it's the one true church. Evidently, a Roman Catholic apologist has convinced them that it is the one true church and you have to come back home to Rome. Number two, they read the early church fathers, and they're convinced that the second and third century early church fathers were Roman Catholics. Well, how do you answer that? Well, we show them that there are early church fathers on both sides of every issue. But why would we believe the uninspired words of church fathers when we can believe the inspired word of God? And so the third reason is the Eucharist. That is the calling card. Roman Catholic priests are entertaining me anytime I want to come and talk to them. Whenever I travel, I try and meet with Catholic priests, and their goal is to get me to come back home to Rome for the fullness of salvation. And what I'm lacking, according to these priests, is the Eucharist. And if your listeners are not familiar with the Eucharist, the Catholics believe it is the physical body and blood, soul, and divinity of Christ, and that you actually consume Christ when you receive the Eucharist. And so until I come back, Catholic priests say I don't have the fullness of salvation. But when I engage them, I tell them that you will not have the fullness of salvation until you come to the true Christ. Only then can you have the complete forgiveness of sins. According to your religion, you don't have that right now because you have the doctrine of purgatory. According to your religion, you don't have the assurance of eternal life. If you come to Christ, then you can have the assurance of eternal life based on 1 John 5.13, all that Christ has accomplished. And then I also share with them that you have no power to be victorious over sin because you do not have the Holy Spirit. So come to Christ, put your trust in him, receive the Holy Spirit, who will not only indwell you, but empower you and seal you for the day of your eternal life. He is a deposit guaranteeing your eternal life. So that's how I answer those three issues. But another issue, in fact, one of the most popular Catholic apologists today is Scott Hahn. If you read his book, you will see that he came to the Catholic Church because he was praying to Mary, and evidently Mary answered his prayer. And so he did something very unbiblical and joined the Catholic Church because, quote-unquote, Mary performed the miracle. Yeah, and we know that wasn't Mary at all, of course. Um, you know, I, and I think that 
people often lack the confidence in knowing their faith and in believing in Christ, the the faith that we get when we spend time in the actual Word of God. And I think people are often very nervous. They don't have that confidence about starting a conversation with family members and friends who are Catholic. And we often just need a good place to start. Um, so, of course, we want to be built up in the Word of God. But do you have any advice for our listeners who uh, simply want to share the gospel with their Catholic loved ones? How do we start that? Yes, the key is to speak the truth in love. Yes. So often, I think, and I, I did it all the wrong way. I got so excited when the Lord saved me. I never had any evangelism training, but I did know the gospel, and I wanted to share it with them. So when I went home for Christmas, I literally backed up the theological dump truck and let them have it all in one fell swoop. Oh, no. And they were just reeling backwards, and that was not the approach. Unbelievers do not want to be preached at. And so what we need to do is let them know that we love them. Let we let them know that we care for them. A good way to do that is to ask questions. People don't care how much you know until they know how much you care. And so ask them, what are you trusting to get to heaven? That's a great question to open up the conversation on spiritual things. And then you can ask, did you know that God promises eternal life? and gives assurance to those who trust Christ alone. You know, in Roman Catholicism, you mentioned it earlier, the five solas, how important they were. See, Roman Catholicism teaches you're saved by grace plus merit, faith plus works, Christ plus other mediators, scripture plus tradition, and all the glory goes to God plus Mary and the saints. Well, the Reformers, having studied the Word of God, they recognized this was false, and that's why we have the five solas, that we're saved by grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone, according to Scripture alone, all for the glory of God alone. And so as we share the gospel with our loved ones, there's some things that I often say, if there's a little bit of tension, I will say, you know, If our roles were reversed, I would want you to pursue me with the truth of God's word until I believed, just like I'm pursuing you. I love you. I want you to be in heaven. And there's only one way. We've got to come to heaven God's way. He's the one that created heaven. And he said, Jesus Christ is the only way. John 14, 6, he is the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father except through him. He's the way for those who are lost. He's the truth for those who are deceived, and he is the life for those who are dead in their sins. Come to Christ. And the only way we can come is with empty hands of faith. We need to leave all of our good works behind. We need to leave all of our sacraments. We cannot get to heaven by obeying the law, which is one of the requirements the Catholic Church teaches. James said, if you keep the law perfectly and stumble at one part, you're guilty of breaking the entire law. And so we have to come to the cross bringing nothing but our sins. And that's hard for Catholics because they've been indoctrinated from the time they can think. They must do, 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 do. No, we have to show them Christ has done it all. Trust him alone. That's right. Boy, those are some really good tips and good advice for witnessing to our loved ones who are who are Catholic. Um and we, you know, we want to get as close to them as we can and show them our love and everything. But scripture does tell us, uh, for example, like in Second Corinthians six fourteen and following, that uh, there are times when it's it's not good to be too close to people who are unbelievers. That we're not to be unequally yoked together with unbelievers in certain ways. And so. Um, just shifting our focus just a little bit. For a long time, Catholics have been really heavily involved in the pro-life movement. So, you know, thinking about what, you know, the Bible says about not being unequally yoked together with unbelievers, is it biblical for doctrinally sound Protestant churches or individuals to partner with Catholic organizations in pro-life work and events and things like that? Well, definitely pro-life work. I often go out to abortion mills, and Catholics really put us to shame. They outnumber us wherever we go. Now, there's a couple of things that we do 
number one, we're there to not only hopefully save physical life, asking mothers not to abort their babies in their womb, but we're also there so that we can show Catholics how to receive eternal life. And so our purpose there is twofold, to evangelize the Catholics, but also to save the physical life of the babies in the womb. One thing we can never do is we can never pray with Roman Catholics because it goes back to what you shared in 2 Corinthians 6. They have a different father. You know, not everybody is a child of God. In fact, only those who have been born again, adopted into God's family, can call God the Father their father. We see there's another spiritual father in John chapter 8. Jesus was talking to the apostate Jews. He said, you are children of your father, the devil. And so every unbeliever has a spiritual father as the devil. And it's only by being adopted into God's family through faith in Christ that we can be co-heirs with Christ and call God our father. And so I, I say that because we cannot pray with them. We have a different father. And oftentimes I think evangelicals don't realize that. Now, if I'm at a dinner party or we have unbelievers over, I will pray before the meal, but I won't address God as Father. I will cry out, oh, sovereign Lord, or oh, holy God. But we have to be careful not to give them the indication that they're our brothers and sisters in Christ. We have different fathers. So I hope that's uh, a good exhortation. Yes, let's participate. Let's try and save the lives of the babies in the mother's womb. But at the same time, we cannot cooperate with Catholics. We cannot support Catholic organizations that are pro-life. There are many evangelical organizations that do the same. That's where we need to put our support. What about, and, and you've sort of answered this question a little bit, but what about attending weddings and funerals at a Catholic church? Uh, I, and I know those are two different things, but we've all got loved ones who, you know, we might get an invitation or there may be a funeral. Uh, and, and I've heard many Christians say they simply won't go to a family member's wedding or a funeral. What are your thoughts on that? Yeah, that's a, an issue that we need to pray about and encourage people to pray about. It's not a black and white issue. These are life events. For example, when my dad died, you know, I had to go to his funeral, and I used it as an opportunity to share the gospel. Funerals are great places to share the gospel because everybody there realizes that one day they're going to be in that casket. And we ask them, are you ready to meet your creator? And I go on to share, when you meet your creator, and you will one day, he will either be a sin-avenging judge or he'll be a merciful savior. And you need to make that decision now. Are you going to trust him as your merciful Savior or reject his offer of eternal life and complete forgiveness? And one day you will meet him as a sin-avenging judge. We must encourage them to come to Christ. And so weddings are a little bit different. Um, Weddings, you have the opportunity to maybe just go to the reception. Because if it's a Catholic wedding, oftentimes they will have a Catholic mass as part of the wedding. And so if you pray about it and you feel it's important to be there, do not participate in the activities, kneeling, standing, singing, praying, sit there quietly, maybe with an open Bible. But uh, it's an issue to pray about because obviously these are individual decisions based on how close they are to the family and whether or not there'd be serious family repercussions by not attending. Difficult questions, but the word of God and the spirit of God will lead them as you pray. Amen. Very wise. Well, we want to ask you about some of the resources, and you mentioned a couple of them. Uh, What can you point people to on your website that would be very helpful must-have tools? Yeah, the book that I wrote, Preparing for Eternity, is an excellent book that has set so many Roman Catholics free from the bondage of religious deception. Because what I do in this book, I present it very objectively. This is what the Bible teaches. This is what the Catholic Catechism teaches. It forces the Catholic, as they're reading it, to make a decision. Christ and his word or the teachings and traditions of my religion. There's some great contrast in my book, Preparing for Eternity, in the middle section of the book. And I really love to teach that way. I like to teach antithetically. This is the truth. 
This is what opposes the truth. And it forces people to make the decision. You know, the gospel is black and white. There is no gray area. You're either lost or saved. You're either headed for heaven or you're headed for hell. You're either forgiven and justified or you stand condemned by your sins. There's just no middle ground, unlike the Catholic Church that teaches purgatory as a middle ground. And by the way, if anyone is trusting in purgatory, they're not trusting in the blood of Jesus Christ. Because in 1 John 1, 7, the blood of Jesus purifies us from all sin. So why would you need purgatory? Trust in Christ, and you'll realize that purgatory is a fraud. So the other resources that we have, I, I mentioned uh, our gospel tracts. We actually have seven. Three of them are dedicated for reaching Roman Catholics, and, and the other four are for anybody that's lost. And one of the most popular tracts is uh, this one here called The Greatest News. The reason it's the most popular is because it contains only the Word of God. And so when you give this track away, you're literally sowing the imperishable seed of God's Word. And God promises when it falls on fertile soil, it will bring forth life. We also have DVDs. We started this ministry sharing a gospel video. Your listeners can do the same thing. Invite people over, share a DVD with them. Invite unbelievers over and share the gospel through a DVD message. We also have uh, gospel cards. I took the 12 most important words of the gospel, and they're the size of playing cards. On the back of each card are four bullet points defining and explaining what each word means. And the 12 words that I put on the cards would include, we have to start with God, who created man perfectly, but man fell into sin. Now he needs Jesus Christ, his work on the cross, and his resurrection from the dead. And it's only by grace, through faith, and repentance, they can receive salvation by believing the truth found in God's word. And so it's not only a tool that will help you go deeper into the gospel, give you more confidence in sharing, but you can also lay these cards out in front of people and ask them, since your eternal destiny hangs in the balance on what you believe about each word, which word would you like to know more about? And they can pick it up and they can read the four bullet points. And then you simply say, do you believe what the Bible teaches about that word? Pick up another card. So it's a great way for them to go through the gospel. So we also have a lot of videos on our website, proclaimingthegospel.org. A lot of different articles that I've written over the years. You mentioned my newsletter. It goes out via email once a month on the first of every month. So if you're interested, you just need to go to our website and sign up for our free newsletter. But we want to equip you, to encourage you, to be faithful witnesses for the Lord Jesus Christ, to make sure that we're proclaiming the gospel in its purity and also in its exclusivity. That's where the attack on the gospel is today. Pastors are trying to make it more inclusive, mm -hmm. denying the exclusivity of the gospel. So we need to make sure we're proclaiming it clearly, fully, and exclusively. We do. And those resources sound like they would really help us to do that. So we want to encourage all of our listeners to go check out those resources at your website. We will have your website linked up in our show notes. So everybody go just explore everything that Mike has got over there. And then, um, Mike, I want to ask you, you know, you speak at churches and things like that. So we want to, we want to encourage our listeners to maybe pass this podcast on to your pastor and ask him, you you know, if, if you can come speak at their, at their church. Uh, but otherwise, uh, how, do, how do people get in touch with you? Is it through the website or, or what? Well, we're manning our phones 24-7. We just embrace the ministry that God has entrusted to us. We always want to make the most of every opportunity. So we invite you to call us. Our phone number is 817-379-5300. And we answer all of our phone calls. We answer all of our emails. You can email me at mike at proclaimingthegospel.org or simply visit our website, proclaimingthegospel.org, and we will respond to you. 
We also encourage you, if you have Catholic friends that would like to talk, I will speak the truth to them in love and we can have a good conversation. We always want to make ourselves available, not only to Christians, to help them grow and become more effective in evangelism, but we also will talk to their friends and their loved ones. Um, We do this often. We go and visit people, people's parents, people's brothers and sisters, and it's just really an exciting ministry. And uh, even though there's a lot of rejection, oh, when someone repents and believes the gospel, not only are the angels in heaven rejoicing, but it just really encourages us to know that the word of God and the spirit of God can bring life to those who are dead in their sins. And we see it happening as we go to and fro, sowing the seed of God's word. Amen to that. That is incredible. And and what an amazing ministry you have, Mike. Thank you. We're, the pleasure is ours for just having you here. Thanks so much for uh, being a part and, and all that you do for the kingdom. Yes, thank you so much. Well, thank you for all of you do too. And as I prayed earlier, God has given us this technology to make his gospel known throughout the world. So I'm so thrilled to see the two of you using the technology to reach so many people through your podcast. Thank you. Well, ladies, that's going to wrap it up for today. Highly recommend you share this podcast uh, with people in your church, with your loved ones. And uh, remember to check out all our resources and subscribe to this podcast on our website, a awordfitlyspoken.life. Yes, please do. And until next time, be in the word, share the gospel with courage and love, and walk worthy.